invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 80, the 80th Psalm. And we will eventually look at Isaiah 64 and 1 Corinthians 1 also. Let us pray. Almighty God, give us grace to cast away the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now in the time of this mortal life in which your son Jesus Christ came to visit us in great humility, that in the last day when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the living and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal through him who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. In my beginning is my end. In my end is my beginning. These lines from T.S. Eliot's poem, Four Quartets, capture well how the first Sunday of Advent marks the first day of the new year on the church's calendar. The church year begins every year with looking ahead to the final return of Christ in the season of Advent. The central claim of this sermon, which is the main theme of Advent as a whole, is that God is coming in Jesus Christ. Prepare and keep watch. Emmanuel, God with us, is coming. Take heart, be comforted, and rejoice. God with us is coming. Your king is coming. Not only did he come once at Christmas in humility, Advent looks ahead to when he will come again in glory. And that should both unsettle us, but also comfort us with sustaining and abiding hope and joy. That God with us is coming as a cause for us to fast and repent and to let your hearts be comforted and sing for joy. There are three comings of God in Jesus Christ when the eternal God united himself with creatures in time. His first coming was in the incarnation of the word at Christmas. His second coming is when he presently comes to us by his word and spirit. And his third and final coming, as we say in the Nicene Creed every week, Christ will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. In the fourth century, around the year 360, St. Cyril of Jerusalem took a group of adults who had recently converted to the Christian faith, and they were preparing for baptism. And he gave them a rigorous multi-year training. And at one point, he's explaining what the Nicene Creed means. And he talks about that line, Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. And he says this, we do not preach only one coming of Christ, but a second as well, much more glorious than the first. The first coming was marked by patience. The second will bring the crown of a divine kingdom. At the first coming, he was wrapped in swaddling clothes in a manger. At his second coming, he will be clothed in light as a garment. In the first coming, he endured the cross, despising the shame. In the second coming, he will be in glory, escorted by an army of angels. We look then beyond the first coming and await the second. At the first coming, we said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, as we say every week. At the second, we shall say it again. We shall go out with the angels to meet the Lord and cry out in adoration, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That is why we profess what has been handed down in the creed, Cyril says. Our Lord Jesus will come from heaven. He will come in glory. He will put an end to the evils of this world, and the created world will be made new.
If you're new to our church, if you're new to our tradition, you might be asking yourself what all of this means, what Advent is all about, or why our service today has been so different from all prior weeks. Others of us have seen Advent come and go many times. And if you're honest, you're kind of burned out on it. Maybe you're kind of burned out on life and maybe a little burned out on church in particular. But I want you to invite you to, to see how the themes of Advent are worked throughout our readings of scripture this morning, uh, especially beginning with Psalm 80. About four years ago, I was teaching Sunday school to third graders on the first Sunday of Advent. And I remember I was just helping and the teacher begins class by saying, who knows what Advent is? And there's one little boy who doesn't even look up from his coloring sheet and he goes, oh, I know that. Advent is about waiting. Waiting is the worst. Um, <laughs> many of us probably resonate with that. Uh, as we're talking about Advent, we don't wanna wait. Um, why, why, is it, why would we look forward to Advent? Our congregation knows a thing or two about waiting. Waiting for a new building, waiting for a new rector. Sometimes life itself can feel like we're in a doctor's office, just waiting forever in a waiting room, maybe waiting for nothing. Maybe we've been forgotten about. Maybe the people in charge are incompetent. If waiting is a big part of Advent, what's so great about Advent? What even is Advent? Well, from Psalm 80, so beautifully read and movingly read by Morgan, we hear a cry for God to set the world to rights. Our psalm reading for, for today in verses 2 and 3 Say, stir up your strength and come to help us. Restore us again, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Advent, first and foremost, is about desiring the face of God, praying that God in Christ would stir up his might and come to redeem us. Our scripture readings at Advent do not gloss over the reality of this world as it actually exists. It is created good. Everywhere it declares its maker's praise. This is my father's world but it has also been subjected to futility because of human sin. And now all of creation is groaning in the pangs of childbirth, awaiting the new creation. Psalm 80, as we heard, narrates the history of Israel as that of God planting a vine, that the Lord rescued Israel from Egypt and planted a vineyard. But if you look at verse 12, it says, the psalmist cries out to God, why have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that moves in the field feed on it. Especially near Christmas time, even those who do not attend church are often so familiar with the coming of Jesus at Christmas that we remember it only partly and forget that he is coming again in glory. We can become nostalgic or sentimental, thinking only of sweet baby Jesus in the manger, surrounded by fluffy lambs and soft little shepherds. And we forget that the incarnation of the word took place in a world of chaos and danger. Advent does not gloss over our world of suffering or try to spin a little silver lining on things. Psalm 80 is a desperate plea for God to keep his promises. God had set his covenantal love upon Israel. And in the Old Testament, Israel's covenant and infidelity ultimately led to their exile and destruction. Psalm 80 is a cry from that exilic period protesting that things are not how they're supposed to be, asking God to make it right. At Advent, those words become our own as we plead for God to make all things new and set this world to rights. We join our voices with Israel in the Old Testament, especially after the exile, longing for the final coming of God's Savior King, the Messiah, to deliver us. The word Advent itself is the, it comes from a Latin term meaning coming or arrival. 
And in the early church, uh, we, we know that Advent was celebrated at least by the fourth century. It was a penitential time of preparation and fasting. By the seventh century, the monk and Pope Gregory the Great standardized Advent in the form we now know it, a more somber season that especially looks forward to the second coming of Christ. Advent for all these centuries has been a close cousin to Lent, a time of fasting, penitence, contemplating our, our mortality and finitude, offering intercessory prayer for ourselves and the world, lamenting things are not how they should be, desiring the coming of God. Advent also centrally concerns rich theological themes, that salvation is the work of God, not a human project, that the triune God has quintessentially revealed himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the death, resurrection, and coming of Jesus Christ, that Christ did not merely come to offer us personal tips for self-improvement, but that he came to accomplish an eternal victory in a cosmic battle over sin, death, Satan, and the demons and the forces of darkness. Advent remembers that this victory is already accomplished, already secured, though it's not yet manifest in history, so we look forward to it. You might have heard that language of battle in our collect for today. Almighty God, give us grace to cast away the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. But this season of lamentation, grief, and repentance is not a drag. It's a season of joyful hope, of defiance of the world. It is a season of remembering that it is only by being in Christ, by being incorporated into Christ, that God in his grace welcomes us scoundrels to become his sons and daughters. That grace transforms us and issues to us a call to arms, not with physical weapons to wage war against flesh and blood, but with the spiritual weapons of grace to cast away the works of darkness and put on God's life and immortality. You'll notice that at the end of Psalm 80, it sounds like a lawsuit. It summons Israel to live up to the covenantal way of life they were committed to. But that's especially clear in our reading from Isaiah chapter 64. When you look in Isaiah chapter 64 from our second reading, Isaiah longs for the inbreaking of God's kingdom, seeking the time when God's final future triumph over the forces of darkness will be unveiled, and it summons us to repentance. Isaiah is not squeamish about God's judgment. He's not hesitating or uncomfortable about it. He is desperate for it. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Isaiah longs for correction of this world in its broken condition. That is a word that should strike fear in the heart of the current powers that be, but a word that should enliven and embolden us, enliven us to seek God's reign of peace and righteousness. Look especially at the language of verses two through four. As when fire kindles brushwood to make your name known to your enemies, though God has done awesome things that no one asked for, God is coming and acts for those who wait for him, from verse four. Things that have been done in secret are going to be brought into the light. What has been hidden at night is suddenly about to become visible and exposed. So much of what robs us from true joy, so much that harms ourselves and others, what pulls us towards nothingness like a black hole is done in secrecy. Bitterness and unforgiveness like weeds take over the soil of our hearts. Pornography use distorts and poisons everything within, malforming us to relate to God and others falsely, and secrecy is integral to its appeal and the vicious cycle of shame it creates. Abuse of alcohol and other substances 
greed and envy, sloth and gluttony, apathy about the suffering of others, our vain attempts to win applause from other people, self-righteousness. We're not like those other people with different vices from ourselves. We do not want to bring these things into the light. There's also simply so much suffering and sorrow that happens in the inner recesses of our own hearts that we don't want to share with others what has been done to us. Maybe we don't have words to share the suffering that we are enduring. Yet God, in his kindness and grace, throws the light of dawn upon our darkened horizons. The message of Advent refuses to lie about who we are and what this world really is. As David Foster Wallace says, the truth will set you free, but not until it is finished with you. Advent is about God and his kindness and grace pulling us into the light, sometimes kicking and screaming. And one day soon, his light will cover the earth as water covers the ocean floor. Listen for the kindness and severity of God in Isaiah 64. We've all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Remember, Lord, we are your people. Even our best efforts at being righteous, Isaiah 64 says, are often hesitating. Our motivations are often mixed and we're a mystery to ourselves. But in Isaiah 64, amidst devastatingly exposing our sin, God in his kindness invites us to call him our father. As we are joined with the son of God, Jesus Christ, God calls us out of the madness and the anxiety of lying, lying to God, lying to others, and lying to ourselves about who we really are. We put on a front of self-righteousness to impress others, but we are broken people, each desperately in need of a savior. The world stands to profit a great deal of distracting us from this fact. On Mad Men, the advertisers know that what everybody wants to hear is that we are all each okay. Everything is going to be okay. And that's true. Everything is going to be okay. St. Julian of Norwich says that all manner of things shall be well, but only when Christ comes in glory. He will come to unmask the false lords of history and the idols of our hearts. But God in his grace is light breaking in upon our dark world. It both exposes us, but also heals us. We are but earthenware, clay vessels. And God doesn't, in Isaiah 64, shatter us in frustration. He's like a master craftsman and potter, molding us into his image. Our service today began with a penitential prayer, the Great Litany, which the Book of Common Prayer encourages us to do on the first Sunday of Advent. It will also include something in a little bit called the Exhortation, which the church has historically offered in penitential seasons such as Advent and Lent. We will hear it today after the Nicene Creed, and it is a word that cuts in order to heal. That God has come, that he comes, and that he is coming again is a word of comfort to the afflicted and affliction to the comfortable. Romans says that it is the Lord's kindness that leads us to repentance. And it is fitting to, to, to give ourselves to as we're preparing for Christ's return. But the church's historic vision of Advent as a penitential season has been significantly eclipsed in the modern world. Advent has kind of disappeared in some places, or it's been so transformed that it has little resemblance to the church's historic observation. And it can also just seem kind of weird 
and we're walking through the mall and everybody's having a holly jolly Christmas with lattes and here we are acting like it's Lent. <laughs> Tish Harrison Warren writes that the tricky part about being countercultural at Advent is to figure out how to do so graciously without being a crank, a grinch, or an obnoxious jerk. One of the hardest things about Advent is how to honor it as a season of preparation and penance without being a total killjoy as Christmas bells ring around us. Advent is a gift from the Christian tradition, not a burden to be wearily shouldered or a perch from which to look down others. As with the rest of the church calendar, Advent is a helpful and formative spiritual practice, but we need to ask, what is God's invitation to me through this discipline and in this season of my life? What is God's invitation to you? How can we be a community of character, a, a, a sign to the world that Jesus is coming? Probably not by being as busy as we can possibly be in the holiday season. Maybe, as our church has historically had as one of its values, being a community that's restful, being a community that has time for God and for one another. Um, that is a, a shocking thing given the frenetic pace of modern life. But our gospel reading gives us a clue of, how, of the invitation of Advent of what to do. In Mark chapter 13, Jesus summons us three times to stay awake. He repeats it three times, stay awake, as he's using this language from Daniel to talk about him returning. Advent is a season of not just any kind of waiting. It's not a listless waiting room. It's not the DMV. It's not the doctor's office. Advent is a training regimen that forms us to a very specific kind of waiting, a disciplined, hard-fought, hard-won patience of expectant anticipation that God is coming. In the 20th century, theologian Karl Barth said this about, about it. Is not perhaps the surest test of genuine Christianity and church life, whether the people united in it exist wholly in this expectation and therefore not at all in a supposed present possession of the glorious presence of the Lord? Isn't real Christianity about those who haven't already arrived but are expectantly awaiting? Will not his truly promised and therefore undeniable presence among us necessarily show itself in the fact that we exist as those who know an honest and basic lack and thus hope for his conclusive appearing and revelation and our own in the world's redemption and consummation, looking and marching towards it in Advent and a movement from Christmas, Good Friday, and especially Easter? What other time or season can or will the church ever have but that of Advent. If God is coming, such that in the, some sense the whole of the Christian life is lived during Advent time, what kinds of people ought we to be? How are we to stay awake? When is Christ going to return? Everywhere in Scripture, the teaching is the same, as we heard in Mark 13, that we cannot know. No one knows, Jesus said. How do you prepare when you know someone is coming to your house and you do know when they're coming, or at least when you hope that they're coming? It might be late. When guests are coming over whom you respect, and you want them to feel welcomed and respected, what do you do? How does, the, how does the life you lead reflect the fact that Christ is coming? How are you living expectantly, anticipatorily? We must live amidst the routines of daily life and amidst the, the rhythms of the history, but we're often lulled asleep into assuming that time is a flat circle, that history is just one more thing after another, and maybe it ends as a tragedy. But I want you to discover this Advent, how the story of the gospel can shape our lives as a community. 
In his book, After Virtue, Alistair McIntyre writes that we can only answer the question, what am I to do, if we can answer a prior question, of what story or stories do I find myself a part? I suspect that one reason that we bristle at Advent and put up our guard or just kind of check out from it is that we are already deeply formed by alternative stories about our identity, our world, and where history is going. And there are at least three reasons we bristle at Advent from these other stories I want to briefly describe. A first reason we bristle at Advent is that sometimes the church has frankly done a very poor job of speaking about the second coming of Christ. This has happened both in very progressive churches and in very conservative churches. In more conservative churches in the last few centuries, there have come about ways of reading the Bible, sometimes called dispensationalism or rapture theology, which has been very influential in the Dallas area. I passed a massive billboard on I-635 in uh, Farmer's Branch this morning that said, is this the end times? Come to our church and find out. Uh, and there's a big picture of Israel. Um, maybe, maybe some of you have backgrounds in churches where there were books such as Hal Lindsey's The Late Great Planet Earth or Tim LaHaye's Left Behind Books and Movies. And this teaching doesn't emerge from a very sound reading of scripture, and it produces a lot of fear and anxiety. The, pro the main problem with that teaching is that the Bible is really clear about when the end times begin. It says in Hebrews chapter 9, Jesus appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is, it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. That's when the end times started, when Jesus appeared at Christmas. That is part of the message of Advent, that he's coming again to save us. And that should be a ground for hope. Differently, in more progressive churches, there's been a tendency over the last couple of centuries to downplay or just outright deny the bodily return of Jesus Christ or kind of reduce it to a metaphor for the social program we should build, that the world is progressing somehow. And that idea almost captures something's true. We should live in a, a way that is right and good. But there's something very wrong and maybe even cruel about thinking that this world as it is is perfectly fine. No need for judgment here. Everything is great. Everything is okay. We need God to come make right this broken world, and he will do so in the return of Jesus Christ. Differently, we might wrestle at Advent because we're committed to very secular stories, alternative stories. In the Christian story, beauty is at the heart of reality because God is beauty. Dante Alighieri's Divine Comedy ends with a vision of God, and he writes that, when he finally sees God, all powers of high imagining here failed, but now my will and my desire were turned as wheels that move in equilibrium by love that moves the sun and other stars. Love is moving the universe in the Christian story. The secular story holds that nothing is moving everything, and it's kind of going nowhere. There's nothing but matter in motion. Augustine in, in the early church described how there are two different stories, the story of the city of God and the story told by the world. And they are created by two kinds of love. One is created by love for God and the other is created by love of self. And it is ultimately about the desire for power. Alex Fogelman is the director of catechesis for the, our denomination, the Anglican Church of North America. And he says this about secular narratives. They are beliefs about reality that most cultural institutions inculcate as inarguable, obvious truths. They come to us now dozens of times a day, or even in an hour, in ads, tweets, or posts, whatever they are, music, stories, opinion pieces. 
There are narratives about, he gives a few. Identity, you have to be true to yourself. Freedom, you should be free to live as you choose, as long as you don't hurt anyone. Happiness, you must do what makes you happiness. You can't sacrifice that for anyone. Science, the only way to solve our problems is through objective science and facts. Morality, everyone has the right to decide what is right and wrong themselves. Justice, we are obligated to work for the freedom, rights, and good of everyone in the world. History, history is bending towards social progress and away from religion. Alex says, while each of these cultural messages is partly true and often distorts a part of the Christian teaching, they're all mistaken. And we need to narrate the Christian story in a way that speaks to these concerns. Leslie Newbegin, the, the famous British missionary, said in an interview once that I am neither an optimist nor a pessimist. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. That is a Christian view of history. It's neither nostalgia for some lost golden age. It's neither uh, the mythology of progress overcoming all, the, all that has gone before. It is Christ coming again, God having the last word. Finally, a, a last reason we might bristle at Advent is much more personal than a bunch of ideas. We bristle at Advent because of the sorrow, weariness, and frustrations of our heart that are often below the surface and unexpectedly appear in December. We get weary. We get discouraged. And the personal disappointments and heartbreaks of life can suddenly brim up to the surface. How do you feel about a new year on the church calendar? Do you, are you, do you want to ring in the new year that maybe this year things will be better than the, than the past? Or do you resonate with alt-rock band Death Cab for Cutie? So this is the new year, and I don't feel any different. Or as you too sing in the 90s, nothing changes on New Year's Day. December can be a time of festive holiday merriment, but can also be a very dark time for many of us. The days are shorter, the air is colder, night comes faster. And from the recesses of our deepest longings, what we hoped for and dreamt our lives would be seem very far from how things have actually gone. Around us, without, the world has no shortage of suffering from international wars to local suffering. In the county I live in, one in three children live below the poverty line. Within, at year's end, shadows can fall upon us as we live with regret, guilt, and shame. Not only have we not accomplished good things we aspire towards, we take stock of a year that's gone by in ways we've harmed ourselves, others, and the creation. Do we really believe that Jesus Christ, crucified for our sins, is coming again? That he swallowed up death forevermore? That one day cancer will be no more? That one day the Lord will restore to us the years the swarming locust has eaten? This holiday season can be hard, especially when we long to be with others and cannot, loved ones who have passed away, people that we love but are estranged from. This time of waiting can be hard. And we wonder, are we waiting for nothing? And that is not a new problem. That's a problem in the New Testament itself, actually, in 1 Peter chapter 3. Peter indicates that he's reminding the church that Christ is coming, and he says that there are scoffers in his day, in the first century, saying, where is the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And Peter commends the church with a word of hope that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. God is patient. And he, Peter says, what sort of people then ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God? If history is the year of our Lord, and he's coming again, there's cause for hope. And we especially see that in our final reading 
from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul wrote to a struggling church at Corinth, and he begins his letter thanking God for giving them grace. And he says that the church lacks no gift. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into participation, into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. As we await his return, what do we do when we fear that our faith will fail? What do we do when we try to avoid sin and keep failing again and again, when temptations and demons and suffering and heartache seems to lurk around every corner in life sometimes? What do we do when we fear dying, unsure what exactly is on the other side? Notice in verse 8 who it is that sustains you. Notice who is the active agent here. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son. God is the one who is the ultimate root of our hope. Remember that it's through your union with Christ, being incorporated into Christ, that we have hope. Advent invites us to be honest about the state of our world and lives, but also hope in God's faithfulness. Advent narrates the plot line of our world, the threefold coming of Emmanuel, and directs us as a story that we get included in. The fourth wall has been broken. You have been pulled on stage in this drama, and this is the script that Christ is coming again in glory. When was the last time that you pondered the last things? Death, judgment, heaven, hell. When was the last time you set your hope before him, upon him, upon heaven? In Calvin's Institutes, he says that we need more than common patience, that we may not in our weariness reverse our course or desert our post. Therefore, whatever has so far been explained about salvation, direct your hearts upward. Let us fix our eyes fast on Christ as we wait upon heaven. He says, to the huge mass of miseries that almost overwhelm us are added the jests of profane men, which assail our innocence when we, willingly renouncing the allurements of the present life, seem to strive after blessedness, which can seem like a fleeting shadow. Above and below us, before us and behind, temptations besiege us, which our minds would be quite, happy, quite unable to sustain were they not freed of earthly things and bound to the heavenly life. Accordingly, he alone has made solid progress in the gospel who has acquired the habit of meditating continually upon heaven. Let us remember that the goal of the resurrection is eternal happiness, a happiness of contemplating God as the supreme good. Very differently, this is how Jewel the Unicorn in C.S. Lewis' Chronicles of Narnia describes, th describes things, looking forward to heaven. It is as hard to explain how this sunlit land was different from the old Narnia as it would be to tell you how the fruits of that country taste. Perhaps you'll get some idea of it if you think like this. You may have been in a room in which there was a window that looked out on a lovely bay of the sea or a green valley that wound away among mountains. And in the wall of that room opposite to the window, there may have been a looking glass, a mirror. And as you turned away from the window, you suddenly caught sight of that sea or valley all over again in the mirror. And the sea in the mirror, or the valley in the mirror, were in one sense just the same as the real ones. Yet at the same time, they were somehow different, deeper, more wonderful, more like places in a story, in a story you've never heard but very much want to know. The difference between the old Narnia and the new was like that. The new one was a deeper country. Every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. I can't describe it any better than that. If you get there, you will know what I mean. It was the unicorn who then st stood up and summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his forehoof on the ground and neighed and cried, I have come home at last. 
This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we loved the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. Come further up, come further in. Emmanuel is coming. During this season, the church remembers and longs for and desires and hopes for the coming of God with us in Jesus Christ. He has come. He comes to us now, and he is coming again. Therefore, let your hearts be comforted. Your king is coming. Let us pray. We praise you, unseen Father, provider of immortality. You are the fountain of life, the fountain of light, and the fountain of all grace and truth. Lover of humanity, lover of the poor, you reconcile yourself to us all, and you draw us all to yourself through the advent of your beloved Son. We beg you, make us come alive. Give us a spirit of light that we may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Give us the Holy Spirit that we may be able to proclaim your unspeakable mysteries. May the Lord Jesus speak in us in the Holy Spirit, and may we sing praises to you. Amen. Amen.